breaking down the news, going beyond the headlines, and unpacking the stories that we're told. I'm James Matheson, and this is Todaily. This is it. This is Todaily. Welcome to the podcast. Our first episode. Uh, it's a daily news podcast, and I know there are a lot of news podcasts. This is another one of them. But what I wanted to do was sort of help people decode the news a little bit, I guess. The idea is to have a show that helps you interpret what we see in the news and why it's in the news and give some perspective to the stories that we read and hear. I mean, we often take what we see in the media and in the news at face value when the reality is that behind every story is bias and there's spin and there's groupthink and there's tribalism and editorial agendas and all of those things play a role in either overtly or covertly distorting the stories that get served up to us. So I guess the idea is to try and cut through that as much as possible and explore what's really going on. But full disclosure, I'm as susceptible to all of that as anyone else. But I think the important starting point is realising that and then trying to make sense of it all accordingly. Alrighty, let's get into it. Now, the story of sexual assault allegations against federal MP Christian Porter has got to be perhaps the biggest political scandal of the year, not just because of the nature of the allegations, but also because of revelations that came to light in the latter half of the year that the defamation case he launched against the ABC was paid for using funds given to him by anonymous sources using something called a blind trust. Now, Christian Porter claims that he set up the blind trust to pay for his legal fees and to protect the identity of those who were assisting him financially. But the reality is he used money that was donated to him, and we're talking potentially over a million dollars, for his own personal expenses and will not or cannot reveal who or where he got that money from. And regardless how you feel about the initial allegations against him, it is just a shocking affront to the idea of transparency and flies in the face of how our version of democracy works. So with that in mind, I thought we'd go right back to the start in many ways to those initial sexual assault allegations and talk to a journalist who knew about them perhaps before anyone else in the media. In May this year, journalist Tori Shepard wrote a deeply personal article for The Guardian outlining how well over a year before the initial allegations came out against Christian Porter, she had met with a woman we only know as Kate who told her that 20 years earlier, when she was just 16, she was sexually assaulted by a man who is now a prominent government politician. She 
She'd spoken to the police, but she was unsure about taking her statement public. Tori wrote in the article about how she found the woman to be credible, but that alone isn't enough for a story. In fact, it's not even close. I mean, from verifying as many details as you can to worrying about defamation laws and the journalistic code of ethics to jumping through the necessary but tricky hoops of editors and lawyers and just grappling generally with how you bring something as explosive and as harrowing as this to light is no easy task. In the Guardian article, Tori outlines how at the end of their meeting, she makes sure the woman had support around her and that she knew if she needed more support, she would know where to turn. But ultimately, she decides not to push the woman. As she can see, she is shaken and obviously suffering. So the decision's made that it would be best to just wait until she was ready and go from there. Sadly, Kate would take her own life in 2020. But before her death, she would write a detailed statement outlining her claims, which earlier this year would find its way to several MPs, including the Prime Minister. Around that time, Christian Porter outs himself as the person named in the allegations and police announce that insufficient admissible evidence exists to move forward with the case. It's a nightmare for everyone involved. A woman is dead. Her friends and family are devastated. Porter's career and his reputation are in tatters. And there's no way to get to the truth, whatever that is. So with Porter back in the headlines, I thought this is a good place to start our first step, a podcast about understanding the nature of the stories we read by talking to Tori about her experience wrestling with just how you report on these sort of things when real human lives are involved, including your own, which is something that's easy to forget. Tori, thanks so much for your time. I'm so excited to be here. Now, you mentioned in that article that the road from rumour and speculation to publication is a rocky one. Is that understating it? Oh, yeah. It's, it's rocky. There's a cliff on one side. There are snakes in the grass. It's, it's really, I, I'm astounded by how many, of even of my friends who've you know, known me and known lots of journalists, think that you just hear a story and you write it and, and that's it. Whereas before I wrote this piece of The Guardian, talking about Kate, obviously, and those allegations, <clears throat> I'd been through, I'd written this other sexual assault story. It had taken a year, you know, stat decks, FOIs, backing it up, you know, looking at what your gut says, then looking at what the law says. It's, it's really convoluted. And in some ways, it's a, it's a relief to now write some sciencey space stuff where it's like, oh, here's a story. <laughs> All I have to do is make the words make sense. <laughs> Now, Tori, you mentioned in the article that you found out about these allegations and you met with the alleged victim and talked to her well over a year before the story came to light. What do you initially do as a journalist when something of this nature, so sensitive, so explosive, so personal, is revealed to you initially? So initially when I talk to someone, I panic about all the ways in which this could go terribly wrong for them, for me, for whoever I'm working for. Um, what happened in this case with 
Kate was, I mean, she, she called me completely out of the blue. We met and as I have done with similar stories, which I knew were going to be legally iffy, I feel more comfortable just saying let's have a completely off the record conversation. First, no commitment from either of us about where we go from here. I want to get a sense of your story, how much you know about the process that you'll have to go through to put your story out there and that that could be re-traumatising for you. Um, and then if you decide you do want to go ahead, we'll, we'll look at the, the legal barriers and potentially moral barriers um, and, and then we'll go ahead. So I only had that initial meeting with her um, and I guess events overtook things. At the end of that meeting where she told me, she told me her story, I felt she hadn't recognised the difficulties of actually getting that story into print and even if it could get into print the the processes she'd have to go through first of all with me telling the story me talking to her friends and then me pitching it to my editors and then going through the company lawyers and all those different stages so there are many things I worry I didn't do right in that situation um, and I guess one of them is you know did I did I scare her off by telling her the complications and potential unintended consequences of going ahead with that story because she wanted, you know, she wanted the story out there. Um, and I think from all the other media that you can read around what, what happened and the letters that ended up with politicians and so on, it was clear she wanted it out there. And I felt she, um, like, you know, 99% of the population didn't realise how difficult that was going to be. You talk in the article about how difficult it was for you to wrestle with what you did, what you didn't do, replaying the process of events and the sequence in your mind. And I think part of the beauty of the article was that it sort of established some humanness in the journalistic process and in journalists. People won't believe that, James. <laughs> <laughs> The humanity in journal, come on. <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of different parties, a lot of people in power, a lot of politicians, a lot of people on social media even who worked really hard to make sure that journalists are demonised and delegitimised. And, I mean, obviously there are moments where mainstream media has let down reporting, but the idea that we delegitimise people who write stories and do the important work of investigative reporting is a sort of dangerous territory. Yeah, in that respect, I thought the article was super important because it laid bare the reality of what it's like to be a journalist and the struggles that you face in having to deal with weighing up what's often genuine human costs to reporting. Yeah, look, that's what I thought was important. I feel as though I should put a disclaimer you know, on, that, on that article in The Guardian and also just every time I talk about this to say, I'm not saying I did the right thing. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know if I should have um, encouraged her more to, to move ahead with the story. I don't, I don't know what might have happened if I'd done that, you know, and that's, you know, the, just one of the grey areas you sort of tread with this and journalists being humans are all really different and diverse and I know for sure that other colleagues of mine would have you know 
got on the phone, started the process, been very passionate about getting this out there because obviously, you know, if the allegations were proven to be correct, if there was a strong public interest in the story and, you know, we always have to <laughs> distinguish between the public being interested and something actually being in the public interest. And then, you know, I know other people probably would have done the same thing I did, which was in the end, nothing. Can you talk a little bit about your personal reaction when you first saw the claims aired publicly and watched Christian Porter give his initial press conference knowing what you knew about the story? So the devastating thing that had happened before that was that I learned that Kate had um, taken her own life. Um, And, of course, that was a fairly traumatic Obviously, more traumatic for her for her family, more traumatic what she had gone through. But that was a yeah, that was that was a real gut punch, which really made me, I guess, go back into that stage of could I, what what could I have done differently? And then, you know, it's interesting when the media is not reporting on something, but they're sort of skirting around it. But you're pretty sure you know what they're talking about. So there was that until Christian Porter stood up and said he was the person named in the allegations. And then I did a thing which I I guess I quite often do with various news stories, which is that I obsess over them for a while and then I shut myself off from them, which is, I guess, a self-protective mechanism. Um, You know, at first it was like I wanted to read every single thing that was being written and that's probably part of berating myself and trying to work out where I could have gone, what I, you know, was there something I missed that might have made... Sorry, my dog is snoring quite loudly on my lap. That's <laughs> not coming across. Um, yeah, digging through everything that everyone was saying, you know, doom scrolling through social media to see what, what's out there and whether that changes the way I feel about what I did. And then I guess, yeah, then I took a pretty big break. I, you know, had a lot of changes in my life in the meantime, and I was I was freelancing, so um, things were a little chaotic. And then watching it sort of become part of this bigger Me Too movement as well, um, you know, then we heard from Brittany Higgins and, you know, then Grace Tame was named Australian of the Year. And that, that's been, I think it's been really intense and exhausting for a lot of people and particularly women reporting on allegations about sexual assault. It's, you feel like you have to and you have an obligation to you worry that justice won't be done here or there in any of, you know, I'm not talking about specific cases. And you do get a kind of, it's like a deep fatigue. <laughs> As you were talking there, I was reminded that there were a couple of pieces that came out at the time that framed your reporting and those of other women as if they had some sort of alternative agenda. Yeah, that because of the very nature. Yeah, there was a real grossness around it. The fact that you and others are women, it was characterised as attacks on men. Did you clock that at the time? And what was your reaction? Yeah, my eyeballs really hurt from the rolling. Um, I think there was one particularly that was saying there were all these activist women in Canberra now, and I was (laughs) thinking about the names going... Samantha Maiden, I think she's been there 30 years, Laura Tingle, something similar, Catherine Murphy, they've all been, it's not, this isn't a sudden thing. To me, what the difference had been 
not that women were talking about it wanting to report on it and and men I'm not saying it was just women but we're talking about the women that were sort of accused of being activists rather than journalists it was that you know the people who edit the newspapers and the people who put together the television shows seem to be more willing to to give these sorts of stories a run and to me that was really you know that was definitely a positive move because there can be a like a, a squeamishness or a um, a reluctance to put context around things like sexual assault and allegations, partly the chilling effect of the media and defamation laws and, and so on. And also maybe because, you know, people need to go home to their wives who need to tell them to think about their daughters before they can start to take these things a little more seriously and also to, to be able to handle the nuance and to want to put the nuance out there in the public sphere. You talk in the article about that 2 a.m. moment where you're sort of wake in fright, wondering if you've actually done the wrong thing and unsure whether you've made a, a terrible mistake. Do you think people underestimate the impact that stories have on journalists outside of just the, the nine-to-five reporting? I was thinking about this a lot during... The period when we had the Dan Andrews press conferences and people were very dark on the media, I think because they hadn't witnessed full press conferences before and how much like a pack you know, journalists can seem. And yet, no, I don't, I don't think most people do realise, and I kind of can't blame that. I feel like the fourth estate in a way, it's like politicians, you know, don't, you don't have to spare too much sympathy for us. It's just every now and then, particularly when, the political class demonised the media class, your fake news, um, oh, the media chose to focus on that, oh, that's the camera bubble and try to dismiss it. They try to feed into this idea that we are just these kind of insatiable beasts after a, after a click or a headline or whatever else. And that's not just, it's personally insulting, but I get that, you know, you don't have to worry about me feeling personally insulted. It's really bad for democracy. <laughs> we have this, if we have politicians feeding into an already existing mistrust of the media um and you know I know lots of lots of very intelligent people who mouth off about you know the MSM the mainstream media you know oh, I wouldn't read that it's like well if you're not you're not reading exposés of corruption you're not reading about uh the ways in which politicians are, are twisting words or making false promises um and all of this is happening in a pandemic where trust is really important, where people knowing the facts in a contextual manner is really important. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a broader reason why it upsets me that people think, <laughs> think that journalists are all these kind of cold beasts who just, you know, write the next day's fish and chips wrappers and then sleep well at night because most of the ones I know don't. I mean, you know, there are different journos out there. I know there are some people who, um, you know, sleep very well no matter what they've written but most of the ones I know are yeah the bundles of nerves you know more and more these days you hear that sentiment oh the media can't be trusted oh it's fake news I always think to myself just be wary of who that serves that idea that the media at all can't be trusted Yes, the media does get it wrong. Yes, there is an element of bias that exists. They sensationalise, they go over the top. But 
the idea that you cannot trust them at all, that premise really only serves people in power. Because once we delegitimize the media, once we get the idea that the media can't be trusted, then there is no one to hold the powerful to account, which is perfect for them. That's, ex- that's exactly right. And it's such a Trumpian thing. And I think the first time I heard an Australian politician use fake news, I think it was Matthias Cormann, former finance minister. And I just remember thinking, oh, no, we've brought that over here. Mm. This kind of, you know, rah, 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 put your MAGA hat on, you know, believe that there's a sex cult operating out of a pizza shop, like this kind of reams of misinformation. I was like, we can't have that here. And since then, you know, it has it has crept in, not just in, you know, Craig Kelly and George Christensen and those backbenchers who are, you know, spreading misinformation through their social media, but you, you hear the Prime Minister use terms to discredit the media. They did it just recently with the um, Greg Hunt and Scott Morrison both blamed the media for focusing on something they put in a press release, which was that people trying to return home from India could get sent to jail, face massive fun. They put it in a press release predictable outrage outrage ensued and they said oh it was the media who chose to report that and oh it gets my goat (laughs) it's it's, yeah it's it's the powerful serving themselves at the expense of proper information getting to the public now the cynical take on christian porter settlement with the abc and the intention behind initiating defamation proceedings wasn't particularly about wanting to take this to trial, the idea was to ensure that any other outlets or any of the legal teams that work for major publications become ever more gun-shy. And we're seeing a trend, I think, that kind of bears that out. Yeah, look, I think whether it was intentional or not, there is a chilling effect to actions like this. I mean... Because I worked for various outlets. I know while all of this was happening, you know, I was wrote a piece of The Guardian, I was talking on the ABC about it, and you would be be very clear and it would be made very clear to you just how careful you had to be. And I know as a freelancer now, oh, if something similar happened, because at the time when I spoke to Kate about her allegations, you know, I was employed by News Limited, who have obviously resources and their own legal team and so on. As a freelancer, I don't, I genuinely don't know what I would do if faced with a similar situation that could actually move forward. And think about, for example, Louise Milligan, one of our finest investigative journalists, and what she personally has been put through. And, you know, again, I'm not making any judgments either way about the allegations. But to personally go through that, and she, I mean, she has, she, you know, after all her work on George Pell, I could only applaud somebody who keeps, you know, keeps standing there and, and fighting for what she thinks is right. Because there'd be lots of people who just put it in the too hard basket. And that's not just journalists, that's all the way up the chain. You know, we've got a, a bit of a crisis in particularly the newspaper industry. There's much less money than there used to be. So... If the lawyers come back to you, which the ones I've worked with sort of have a, you know, I guess a risk-benefit analysis of like, okay, you've you've backed it all up properly, but there's a chance they'll drag it through the courts. And if that happens, 
it could be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, even if you're ultimately, you know, vindicated or whatever. So, yeah, I think Australia's defamation laws have been discussed globally as being chilling and restrictive. We've spoken a bit about the funding model that used to fund newspapers is starting to collapse and the reduction in staff and less opportunities for journalists in regional areas. All of these forces going against, you know, well-funded investigative journalism, newspapers collapsing, how much harder does that make the road from allegation or a sniff of corruption to actual publication as we see the gutting of newspapers and defunding of journalism across the board? I reckon it would depend more on journalists who are still employed and whether you have your Louise Milligan equivalents across different, different mastheads and different outlets who are willing to slog away and the editors who are willing to let them and to back them all the way. And I think the pressure makes that a lot harder, as does the turnover of, I guess, more senior journalists in favour of younger, digitally savvy journalists who obviously have a really important role to play but may not have the contacts, they may not have the, um, you know, the, the training, they may not have the, I guess, the role models around them to show them what, you know, old-fashioned shoe leather journalism looks like and they're under immense pressure to turn over stories much more quickly, many more stories much more quickly, um, you know, to keep, keep the internet beast fed. And that naturally acts against doing the bigger investigative pieces. And I, I don't blame them for that. You know, you're trying to keep your job and get through, get through your day and keep everyone happy and things, things slide. The, Thank God um... for the ABC. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now you talked about the idea that you've sort of wrestled with whether you did the right thing when it came to those allegations that Kate brought to you initially and reporting the Christian Porter story. I know you've sort of written about the fact that you personally wrestle with the idea of whether you did the right thing or not around the reportage of this story. But have you sort of come to terms more or less now with the idea that there is no such thing as the right thing or the wrong thing when it comes to a story like this? Oh, that's a really good question. Both, even though that's inherently contradictory. Yeah, I'll always wonder what I could have done differently. Well, also I know that at the time I couldn't think of any way to do it differently. I felt... Like if I hassled her, because to me she seemed mentally precarious, like completely you know, competent, smart, intelligent woman, but shaken up, like she was obviously traumatised. So if I try to do the counterfactual of what if I chased her, I don't, I don't know what the outcome to that is. But it's, yeah, it's the nature of our frail brains that I will probably forever wonder if I did the right thing. And, yeah, to your second question, I guess the right thing by... By whom? The right thing by her? The right thing by the broader sense of justice? The right thing by my employer? <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I don't know if there is a way to say the right or the wrong thing. And also, 
you know, I guess there's that old philosophical conundrum of not knowing what the outcome of any action would have been. Does that make the action before it good or bad when the actual outcome is unpredictable? I won't keep you for much longer, Tori, but I wanted to ask you on a personal level, I mean, journalism isn't easy, you know, the work is precarious, the business model is on shaky ground, uh, it's demanding, you get attacked from all sides, but what is it about the work that keeps you coming back? Why do you still love journalism? Why do you still love reporting? What is it about reporting that you still love? Well, telling stories has its own inherent satisfaction. There's probably some narcissism. I mean, I guess particularly I'm thinking about opinion pieces. You know, there's narcissism in having every week I get a piece of real estate in a you know major newspaper where I can say exactly what I think. And I think a lot of people who've you bashed out a you know quick opinion on social media know that sometimes you just have these opinions that you want to. And I'm lucky enough to to have that chance. And also, you know, it's so varied, you know, it's not all Kate stories. You know, I've just finished writing about NASA's on a new mission to Venus, you know, so that is, as I said, writing the space and the science stuff, it's, it's satisfying and you feel like you're putting something, you know, if five younger people get more interested in science because they're reading about NASA's mission to Venus. And I can't see a downside for that story, although who knows, there may be some like, unintended consequence. And, yeah, I guess you feel as though because you, you know, by, by nature you believe that your take on things is like a, um, a rational one, feeling as though you're putting more rational takes out there is satisfying. But, you know, Nikki Vincent, who was the Equal Opportunity Commissioner here in South Australia, she's now in Victoria, said something I always remember, which is that, Everybody gets out of bed thinking they're the hero in their own story. Like, that's just the way it is. And I guess I'm aware that everything I've just said makes it clear that I think I'm a hero in my own story. Yeah, I mean, I'm making a podcast about the news. You're preaching to the converted. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, you know, you always see those, you know, often pseudoscientific pop psych quizzes about journos being more likely to be psychopaths. I think politicians usually rate pretty high in those as well. A lot of my friends who've left the industry, which is, you know, a lot of people, I think the one thing they say is that they, they miss, apart from the people and the um, ability to have long lunches, is no longer feeling like you're part of things as they unfold. You're not, you know, you're not kind of getting that information that nobody else knows because, one of the things about a newsroom and working in news is that maybe three quarters of the stuff you find out never actually leaves the building, you know, whether, whether that's just rumours or whether it's things that are squashed by legislation or whether it's just that it was a cool story but there wasn't room for it that day so it never made it out. And I guess having access to all of that can be pretty addictive. Amazing. Thanks so much, Tori. Obviously not a easy one to talk about but you bring so much of yourself and so much honesty and candidness and integrity to it all so we appreciate having you on the show thanks james and thanks to daily tori shepherd there she's an award-winning freelance journalist she's written for news corp he's on abc radio sunrise the drum and spent over 15 years at the advertiser 
You can also catch her writing in The Guardian at Tori Shepherd on Twitter as well. That's it from us. Great to have her on the show. She's genuinely one of the good eggs out there. We'll be back tomorrow as we break down the news on Today. Talk to you then.